0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, in order to get this show off to a great start, I had set a goal of doing 20 podcasts in the first month. It goes to say I'm enjoying doing this podcast quite a bit, as I've managed to do that in just its first two weeks. My new goal is to get into CrimeCon in September, and I hope to have 100 episodes done by the time I leave. So thank you to everyone who sent me messages with words of support. I really appreciate it. For the disclaimer, this episode will include crimes against children, so listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crimes Productions Facebook page, and more information can be found on the show's website. If you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And if you can, please support the show via Patreon at True Blue Crimes Productions. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. As this is the 20th episode, it's our second international episode. This is the 20th episode of the True Blue Crime podcast. As a result, it's going to be our second international episode and a big shout-out to Google Translate for all its help with the French and Belgian articles on this case. I do apologize in advance for my horrible attempts to pronounce some of the names in this episode, but I'll do the best that I can. The Ardennes Forest is possibly one of the most famous plots of trees and hills in the 20th century. It played a major role in both world wars, with the famous Battle of the Bulge being fought during the brutal winter of 1944 in the region. While most of the Ardennes lies in Belgium and Luxembourg, parts of the area extend into France and Germany. The country is beautiful and is known for its lush vegetation, rolling hills, and steep river-carved valleys. It's been due to its terrain that it's always been difficult to settle and travel through, which is one of the main reasons it was used so strategically during the wars. As a result, the cities in the Ardennes are mostly small and spread out from each other and in between towns are acres upon acres of dense forest, ideal for those who want to escape the busier parts of Europe or get out into nature. The area around the river Meuse is particularly popular with hikers, campers, and canoe enthusiasts, and for one couple in the late 80s through the early 2000s, it was the perfect place to commit a murder, in fact, commit several murders. This is the story of the Ogre of the Ardennes. Our story begins on July 28, 1976, when a man of only 22 years of age was executed in Marseille, France. His last words to his lawyers were, clear my name, then with a swift assist from gravity, the sharp metal blade removed Christian Renucci's head from his body. Execution by guillotine, and you heard that right, in 1976, less than 50 years ago. I was surprised when I read that, first of all, that France had the death penalty in 1976, and second, that they still used an Industrial Revolution area device to carry it out. France would use it for the last time the following year and outlaw public execution by 1981. What was Ranucci's crime? He was accused, tried, and sentenced to death in 1976 for the 1974 rape and murder of an eight-year-old girl. Many to this day think the wrong man was beheaded the real suspect was in the crowd watching the execution, and he would go on to be called the Ogre of the Ardennes. The case of the murder of 8-year-old Marie Dolores Rambla, long thought to be put to rest, came back into the limelight after a man was arrested in June of 2003. He would confess to kidnapping, raping, and murdering 11 girls during a 14-year span, but investigators believe he committed at least twice as many crimes. While not a lot of specific information is out there about his crimes, I'll start with what we know about his life and then get into the crimes he did confess to committing. Then we'll discuss some of the cases he is suspected of committing, including the 1974 murder of that 8 year old girl. Michel Fournier was born on April 4, 1942 in Sedan, France. Sedan is a town that is centered by the largest fortified medieval castle in Europe. It sits along the river mune just a short drive from both belgium and luxembourg Michel is the son of a metal worker and a homemaker born during the war he spent his early childhood in post-war france and was described as a quiet child who liked to play chess michelle would later say that his mother sexually assaulted him as a child and this would turn him into a monster that craved sex with young virgins he first acted on these sick urges in 1966 at the age of 24 he was found guilty of abducting and abusing a 10-year-old girl in his hometown of Sedan. Unbelievably, he was out of jail and free to commit at least two more abductions and rapes, in which he was once again convicted and then once again set free, until he was found guilty of several abductions and sexual assaults on girls in the area of Paris where he was living in 1984. In this year, he was finally placed in what the internet called preventive detention, which I assume is just a fancy way of saying jail before trial. And it is here that he was, he started sending out pen pal requests via a weekly Catholic magazine. One day the now 42 year old Michelle got got a reply from a 35 year old twice divorced mother of two children she no longer had custody of. Monique Oliver and Michelle began sharing sexual fantasies via their letters throughout his incredibly short prison sentence. He was arrested in 1984 for 11 sexual assaults and abductions on underage girls. He was found guilty in a trial in 1987 and was sentenced to just seven years in prison. But having already served three of these years, and with the judge suspending most of the rest, Michael would get out of prison four months after he was convicted of these terrible crimes. So on October 26, 1987, he walked free from prison and into the waiting arms of Monique. Now, this is where I'll take us an aside from the story and we'll discuss here in America. The the case we covered, the Terror in California series, talked about how lightly law enforcement and the courts took cases of rape back in the in the 70s here in America. And I I did know that it continued into the 80s here. Uh, to a certain degree, but here we're seeing that it's not just an American issue. This was an issue all around the world. And for a man to have abducted and sexually assaulted three young girls between 1964 and 1984 and not be locked away for the rest of his life, that alone has me extremely angry. But then to tell me that you now have him sometime between his third conviction in 1984 he's has committed 11 more of these abductions and sexual assaults of underage girls and he's going to serve roughly three and a half years and then be set free there's nothing to indicate that between 1964 and 1984 after being arrested and convicted three times that he was going to change his behavior So I I don't understand at all the idea that letting him out after three and a half years means he's going to be rehabilitated to the point that he's not going to do this again. But clearly these were different times and I only hope that with all the changes we've made and progress that we've made in, in the criminal justice system that something like this doesn't happen again. Now I don't know if they weren't reading these letters between Monique and Michelle. I believe that almost all prison mail, if not all prison mail, at least in America, is censored so that jailers know things such as escape attempts or people trying to smuggle stuff into prison. It just To me, it just, it again, baffled me that they made plans during this time that Michelle was in prison that Monique, first off, that Monique would, or that Michelle would kill Monique's husband, because apparently I'm assuming she didn't want to be divorced a third time. And I'm just speculating here, but maybe there was some life insurance money or some type of government assistance money available for her if her husband was killed or or died. Ultimately, Michelle wouldn't kill her husband, but I just can't imagine that the combination of Michelle's basically telling her in these letters that he needs help from someone Uh, to help him abduct young girls and she's agreeing to this and he's agreeing to kill her husband and yet he's deemed this model uh, prisoner and therefore released early from his sentence it just again to me it just seems like a complete fail on every level of the justice system but this is the truth and in october 26 1987 he is free to walk away from prison now, as I said, he'd never followed through with his promise to kill Monique's husband, but she is going to follow through on her promise to help him abduct and rape young girls. I figured the easiest way to do this, even though timeline's kind of all over the place, depending on which article you read or how you research this, but I'm just going to go through his crimes in chronological order, and then we'll discuss afterwards some of, the, uh, of how this all falls into the actual investigation timeline. On December 11, 1987, and this is, again, just a month and a half after he got out of prison, at 4.45 p.m., 17-year-old Isabella Laville disappeared on her walk home from school. It would later be determined that the couple had seen Isabel earlier in the day and decided she would be the target. They made a plan in which they drove separate vehicles, and Monique stopped to ask Isabel if she could provide her with directions. Isabel, likely seeing a 35-year-old woman alone in a car, must have decided it would be safe to do so and it would save her a bit of her walk, so she got into the car. Now A short distance down the road, Michelle was waiting by his car. He had staged it to look like the car was broken down, and Monique stopped to offer him a lift, acting like she didn't know him. Michelle got in the back seat, and when they were sure no one was around, he strangled Isabel with a rope while Monique sedated her with the drug rohypnol. They drove to their home where Michelle raped and killed Isabel via strangulation. They then dumped her body down a decommissioned well in a nearby town. Her remains would lay there for over 20 years until Michelle or Monique confessed to police where Isabel's body was and it was recovered on July 11th of 2006. Their second crime is actually going to set them up financially to commit a lot of their other crimes. For their second crime, a cellmate of Michelle had robbed several banks before the cellmate was arrested. Now, on the Wikipedia page, it said this cellmate was part of a large group of guys doing bank robberies, although when I looked at the Wikipedia site for that group, this guy's name wasn't mentioned. But regardless, the idea is that he shared a site with a guy who had robbed banks, and that guy gave his wife Michelle's information. When she was looking for some help, so this this woman named uh, she's thirty years old named Farida Hamish, got a hold of Michael and asked her to help him dig up part of the hall from one of the bank robberies. Michelle sees an easy way to to get some cash. so he drives with Farida to a cemetery, and this is where the crew had buried some gold ingots and coins. For helping Farida dig up the gold and hide it in her apartment, Michelle was given 500,000 francs, which was equivalent to a thousand U.S. dollars in 1987, but in today's dollars, it'd be about $2,500. Michelle, realizing there was a lot more money than what he received, concocted a plan to lure Farida out of her home to talk to him, and when she showed up, Michael strangled her, buried her body, and then broke into her apartment and stole the entire load of gold gold and gold coins the total amount stolen isn't known but it was enough money for the couple to buy a chateau better described as a century-old country mansion in a remote area of the ardenne forest if you go on wikipedia you can actually look at this chateau and i was picturing like a little ski chalet or like a cabin off in the woods this thing is looks like a country manor house, kind of like a mini castle, I guess, that was built by the mayor of the town back in the late 1800s as a hunting shack. But it looks to be what you would picture as a a lord's manor or estate from kind of that, that turn of the century time period. And the other thing when I was researching that group that was robbing banks that this guy was supposedly a part of Uh, It said somewhere on there that they robbed banks for several years and were pretty successful at it, and that their haul was somewhere in the range of $30 million. I don't know if that was $30 million back in the 80s or $30 million today, but either way, it seems like they were pretty successful, and my guess is that this was a pretty decent haul of of gold that he was then able to somehow uh, sell and use it to, to purchase this large house in the country. It wouldn't be until February of 2018 that Michael or I, Michelle is going to confess to this next crime, and there's very little information out there about it. All I could find is that he confessed to killing a 19-year-old mentally handicapped woman named Marie Angel Domis on July 8th of 1988. The, the few Articles that I did find just stated that that he had admitted to the crime and then the other articles that I tried to find Back from when she went missing were not available anymore. So all I know is that There was this 19 year old disabled woman named Marie Angel Domiz and she went did go missing on July 8th and he did confess 30 years later to killing her so We'll move on to crime number four, which we're now in August of 1988. We now move on to August of 1988. Michelle and Monique were eight months pregnant, and on the 3rd of August, they were in town shopping for groceries. It's here that they came across 20-year-old Fabian Leroy. Monique faked a pregnancy-related illness and asked Fabian to show them the way to a medical center. Fabian agreed, and Michelle drove to a remote area of the Ardennes where he raped Fabian and then shot her in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun. They left her body there and it was discovered later that day. Now for the fifth crime, we're gonna go to January of 1989. 21-year-old Jean Marie Desramal was riding the evening train when a middle-aged Michelle struck up a conversation with her. She would meet Monique and Michelle on March 18th at the train station and they invited her over to their house for dinner. During the drive, Michelle asked Jean Marie if she was a virgin, which she said she was not, and that she had a boyfriend. This enraged Michelle and he attacked her and attempted to rape her. She fought him off enough that he could not rape her, but he instead decided to kill her and strangled her. They then drove to the chateau and buried her body in the garden. Her remains were discovered on July 3rd of 2004. In July of 1989, Michelle and Monique were married. Now, I didn't find anything about the husband that Monique wanted Michelle to kill at this point. I assume that she just, she had to have divorced him at some point by now because they're going to get legally married in July 1989. And that year in December, they're going to commit their sixth crime when they drive into Belgium with their now one-year-old son. They drive around until they saw 12-year-old Elizabeth Bresche, who was walking to her friend's house. They waited until she started to walk home and waved her down telling her that their son was having a medical emergency and needed her to show them how to get to a medical center. Elizabeth agreed and went with the couple and their son. They took the young girl to their chateau where she was raped and killed and buried next to the body of Marie Desmoulins. Her remains would also be recovered on July 3rd of 2004. The seventh crime is gonna occur when 21-year-old Joanna Parrish's body was found on May 17th of 1990. She was a British tutor and language student who had been working in the Burgundy area of France. After placing an advertisement in the paper offering English-speaking lessons, she was contacted by Michelle and arranged to meet him. He raped, beat, and strangled her before dumping her body in the Yon River, where it would be found the next day. Now, although Michelle confessed to her murder, he died before he could stand trial for this one. Monique is expected to stand trial for her murder later this year. Their eighth crime occurred on November 21st, 1990. The couple was in court in the town of Nantes in western France for charges of burglary. I couldn't find any record of the crime, the court, why they were in court for this burglary and then I started thinking down the track of have they run out of money from when they took the the bank loot and now they've converted to another type of crime. But again, I couldn't find any information about it. All it said is that they were in this town that day to appear in court. And after they left court, they saw 13 year old Natasha Dene walking home. They lured her into a van asking for directions. Then they drove her to a secluded beach location where she was stabbed with a screwdriver. And evidence shows that Michelle raped her after her death. A neighbor of Natasha's was arrested for her murder, and during a search of his home, they found several members of a terrorist organization being hidden there. It was surmised that Natasha found out about the group and was killed to keep her quiet, but the neighbor committed suicide in jail before trial. After this murder in 1990, Michelle and his family are going to move to Belgium in the early 90s. Michelle would later claim he did not commit any rapes or murders after Natasha and until 2000, but investigators are still working to link him to missing girl cases in the area during the 1990s. Despite denying committing any crimes during the 90s, Michel did admit to three more crimes between 2000 and 2003. The ninth crime that he admitted to was that he claimed to have lured 18-year-old Celine Sison into his van on May 16th of 2000 in a town on the French and Belgian border. He then drove her back to Belgium and stopped to rape her, strangle her, and dump her body in the woods, where it was discovered by mushroom hunters two months later. His tenth crime came around when he was returning to his hometown of Sedan on May 5th of 2001. Michelle claimed to have abducted 13-year-old Manyanya Thompong, a French girl of a Thai immigrant family. He had met her a few weeks prior and had given her a ride home from the library and talked to her about his son who was close to her age at this time. Now, I couldn't find out why, if he already had her in the van the the weeks prior, why he wouldn't have just committed a crime then, but maybe timing wasn't right, or maybe there's somebody else in the van and it just didn't reference that. But he's going to return to this town where he again finds Mañana, and offers to give her a ride to meet his son. She agrees and he drives to Belgium where he rapes and kills her. And Her body was found almost a year later. In the final c- uh, murder that he confesses to, Michael claims to have abducted nine-year-old Essel Moisin from Guermantes, France on January 9th of 2003. This was a case that had caught national attention in France and after his arrest in June of 2003, He was looked at very closely for the crime, but was ruled out when he presented an alibi of being home and making a phone call at the time the girl went missing. Police confirmed his alibi and moved on to other suspects. Eventually they would return to Michelle as a suspect when he confessed to the crime in 2020. He told investigators it was Monique who made the call so that he would have an alibi. He stated he lured the girl into his van, drove her to their house, raped her, strangled her, but could not remember where he dumped her body. Now his 12th recorded crime, thankfully did not end in murder. On June 26, 2003, Michelle attempted to abduct a 13 year old girl. While stopped at a gas station, Michelle tried to rape her and the girl managed to fight Michelle off and escape from his van. She ran to a nearby car and the driver wrote down the license plate of the suspect vehicle as it sped away. Police identified Michelle as the owner of the vehicle and the girl's kidnapper, and he was put into jail to stand trial. It was during this stint in jail that police slowly broke down the years of lies and alibis Monique provided for Michelle. In the months after his arrest, police had located evidence in his van and his house that linked him to several of the abductions and murders. Hairs from some of the victims of his crimes after 2000 were found in his van, and DNA was found in a mattress Kept at his sister's house. Police kept questioning Monique and she eventually told the police about all the murders she knew about. Upon hearing this, Michelle originally confessed to eight of the murders. He was put on trial in 2008 and was found guilty of seven of the murders. It didn't say on there because the Wikipedia site says there's eight murders that he's convicted for, but then under the trial section, it says that there's seven that he was convicted for. So the only thing I could see is that the only body of the eight that he admitted to killing that was not recovered was the wife of his cellmate's body, Farida. So my only thought is that it's very hard to convict somebody of a no-body murder. Now, if it's the only murder that that person has committed and you're trying to pin, and and you know this person committed that murder, and you're going to charge them with it, it can be done, it has been done, and it's been done successfully, but it is very difficult because the defense will often bring up the idea that what if this person just ran away, and this is, or in this case, this is a wife of a cellmate with this big bank heist organization, who's to say that one of the members of the, the bank robbers, you know, didn't, come to the house and kill her and steal the loot that she was trying to recover herself. So that's the only thing I could think of is that they've got him for seven murders of younger women that they have recovered the bodies of, and he or Monique are the ones telling him where these bodies were either were found or could be found, especially the two on their property so my guess is that prosecutors just said let's just try him for the seven for the bodies that we have it's ultimately going to result in in the same sentence either way and we just don't want to muddy the waters with the eighth victim or it could be that it was a typo in wikipedia or a couple of the newspaper articles that i read that that said seven when they really meant all eight but long and short of it is he's convicted of the murders that he confesses to and it's said that he really didn't put up much of a of a fight in the trial uh he didn't uh, he didn't deny the allegations in court and it said that he seemed to enjoy playing a chess game with the investigators in the courts basically if he was asked a question he would answer it but he wouldn't answer specifically the question he would for example they'd say are you confessing to killing Victim A, and he would answer it in the the form of "I don't deny my involvement in the crime" or something along those lines. So he'd n- never fully say "Yes, I did this" or "I killed this person." He'd always word it in a way that was just cryptic. I guess is the best way to put it. But but at the same time, he's not fighting. He's not saying he didn't do anything or or saying, no, I didn't do this. So it definitely seemed like he enjoyed having, keeping those confessions, or at least parts of those confessions to himself. Now he's going to be sentenced to life in prison without parole on May 28th of 2008. He's going to sit in prison for 10 years before he comes forward in 2018 and confesses to the murders of Marie Angel Domis, Joanna Parrish, and Adele Moisen. So in 2018, he's going to confess to the murders of Marie Angel Domise. And that remember, that was the mentally handicapped girl. They never found her body, and there wasn't a whole lot of information about this case, but he clearly had enough information that they felt that he could be responsible, and ultimately he would was to, going to be to stand trial for this that murder he admitted to the murder of joanna parrish and estelle moisey and the nine-year-old girl was covered so much in the news joanna's body had been recovered in the river and i read that initially dna was taken from her body and that was in 1990 it was tested in 1993 and then when michelle was arrested in 2003 it was worded kind of strange, but I assume that at that point, because he lived in the area and had committed crime, similar crimes in that geographical area, his DNA was tested against the sample that they obtained in 1990 and tested in 93. And it came back that it was not a match. So I think shortly after this arrest, they really didn't push that crime on him very hard because they believed that they had a clear cut case where he he could not be responsible for that murder. However, in the years that followed his arrest, and my guess is sometime even after the trial, they realized they had made a mistake and there was a system for analyzing the DNA in 1993 that they didn't use anymore. And the way I read it in the article was that either tested different markers or tested the markers in a different way So that when they tried to match it to stuff in post 2000 it wasn't matching up correctly so it wasn't that it wasn't a match per se it was just basically they were comparing apples and oranges at that point in terms of of the information taken from the test in 93 to what their information they're getting from michelle's sample you know post 2000. my guess is at some point they must have realized this and then done some further testing but it did sound like whatever was done back in 93 there wasn't going to be a way to really confirm because something about there was it was a mixture of samples and and again we're thinking back to it's collected in 1990 dna although we know about it the procedures for preserving it and everything are not the same as they are today so it's very possible that there was some cross-contamination with the DNA sample or some issues with the collection itself to the point that the sample... And even it could be that the sample was not stored properly between 90 and 93 when it was tested. And again, we don't know when it was tested if there was any issue. So the fact that this wasn't a match, my guess is at some point they had to say he's still a viable suspect and they went back to him to see if he would admit to it, and he did. So they now have him on... Marie's murder, Joanna's murder, and Estelle's murder. And again, with Estelle's murder, it it does seem strange. There were other parts of the investigation. It wasn't like they just looked at it and said, oh, well, there's a phone call from your house at the same day and time that this girl's being abducted some distance away, so there's no way that you can be in two places at one time. There were some other things, uh, eyewitness accounts of a man in a van that was driving around the area asking girls questions before Estelle was kidnapped and they showed some of the eyewitnesses pictures of Michelle and they said that it was not the guy. So again, it can be a case where some guy who's legitimately asking people questions happens to be doing so before kidnapping occurs and then when the kidnapping occurs and when they ask eyewitnesses to look at pictures of a guy who's completely unrelated the guy that they saw to the guy that possibly did the kidnapping the guy that didn't see of course you know there's a chance that those pictures aren't going to match up so the long and short of it is they now have him on 11 confessed murders between 1987 and 2003 but he is going to die in prison on May 10th of 2021 before he could stand trial. Police have announced they plan on trying Monique for her role in the crimes because she admitted that she lied to police about the phone call. She was the one making the phone call at the time that the little girl was taken, and this was part of a plan between. Her and Michelle, that she would make this phone call and he would be doing the kidnapping around that time so that it would be a built in alibi for him. And then it said that she admitted to helping detain the girl in their house before Michelle killed her and then she helped with disposing of the body. So Monique will likely face more charges. She was sentenced to, I want to say it was 40 years in prison. And I don't know how that works with their parole system, because she was charged as an accomplice on the murders. She wasn't charged with the actual murders. But it may be something where she's going to be looking at spending the rest of her life in prison if they can put more of these charges, especially her assistance with detaining the nine-year-old before she was killed, to make sure that Monique doesn't ever get out of prison. Now let's take it all back to the beginning of this episode. We talked about in June of 1974 that 8-year-old girl who was taken from a Maasai housing estate. Witnesses saw a man in a Pugot 304 take the girl. The man executed for a crime happened to drive a Pugot 304. So that was convenient in that he roughly matched the description and this is the vehicle that he drives. Police are going to put that together and among some other items of evidence but... Mainly it's gonna be that and he's gonna be arrested. It was said that there was afterwards, there was a lot of flaws in that investigation, but we'll get to that later. It just so happens that at that, in 1974, Michelle was driving that same exact uh, make and model of car. It was also known that he vacationed in Marseille during the time of the kidnapping and murder. And then there's the fact that there's this photo of a guy who looks exactly like Michelle in the crowd at this public execution where the guy is getting guillotined. Without even knowing about potential for Michelle to be involved in this crime, people were uneasy about the murder conviction and execution of this guy within months after the execution. Actually, I think it was even during the trial there was a lot of speculation that this guy likely was innocent and the police were just pushing us through because there's such public outcry over this this little girl being raped and murdered and killed and so uh, at least one investigative writer he wrote this book about the botched investigation and the fact that everything that happened was just railroading this guy to to the guillotine even to the fact that It's just standard procedures, just like it is here in America, that if somebody gets sentenced to death, that they have an appeal process. And then they can also appeal for clemency from, I think in this case, it was was either the governor of the region of France or the president of France that could basically get rid of the death sentence and put them in prison for life just with the stroke of a pen. And it said something in there about how usually it takes... This was a process that could take months or years as i'm sure the aides to the whoever's making this decision is looking into all the stuff and providing this person with the full information and in this case it was one of the shortest periods in which from the time the file landed on his desk to where he basically said nope this is this execution is going to go through was was just a matter of weeks or something along those lines so a lot of people felt like this guy just got the short end of the stick when it came to this investigation, and he wasn't wasn't responsible, and there wasn't any direct evidence, and that was the other thing, is everything against him was circumstantial. It was because he drove a similar car, and because eyewitnesses said he looked like the guy that took the girl, and because he happened to be somewhere nearby, there was nothing directly linking him, no fingerprints, no anything, so when this book hits, it becomes kind of a sensation and everybody realizes that likely an innocent man was guillotined for this girl's young girl's murder. And it actually turns the tide of public opinion on, on the death penalty in France to the point that it's abolished in 1981. And it's mainly because of this case. There is no proof that Michelle is responsible for that crime. It just It's just as much a circumstantial case against him as it was against the guy that was executed. But knowing his history, knowing that he's active during this time period, because this is right smack dab in that middle of 1964 to 1984, where he's out doing this abduction deal with at least known 11 other girls. He didn't kill any of them, so that's a little bit different. But every circumstance is different. Maybe there's something to this one where he felt he needed to kill her when the link is recognized when people start to say hey let's look back on that case from 1974 and maybe this michelle guy's responsible for it it fits his mo police are very quick to say nope nope cannot be him and they say that it's mainly based on the fact that michelle had a different method of killing and he mainly used strangulation and this girl was beaten to death with a rock But we do know from what we just covered that Michelle did kill once with a gun and once with a screwdriver, and he was known to beat his victims before strangling them. And this murder occurred in 1974. This is roughly 15, 20 years before he kind of establishes this strangulation thing. This very well could have been his first murder. We do know that killers do change. I mean, we had covered the Golden State Killer, who killed people a variety of different ways he was doing it on purpose to throw off the police but the idea that every serial killer always kills his victims the same exact way is not true so i think police were kind of trying to push this under the rug and say a guy was convicted by a jury and found guilty and executed and we don't think this other guy's involved and then some people would also point to the fact that oh well he admitted to all these 11 other murders why wouldn't he admit to that one and my thought on that is that he enjoyed that chess game he did it with he only admitted to eight murders the first time around and then all of a sudden it's three more murders after you know after ten years he comes forward with three more murders I think he liked the idea that he had information that the police didn't and that he was kind of sitting on this quote unquote gotcha information in this case would be the ultimate gotcha if he was able to come forward after that many years and say, Oh, remember that little girl in Marseille? Yeah, I killed her and you killed an innocent guy. Like again, that would for a guy like this, that's the ultimate chess game, the ultimate gotcha. You I was able, you know, you guys killed the wrong person. I was even there to watch you kill the wrong person. And I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm not saying that was what was going on in his head, but I'm just saying the potential is there. It makes sense. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if he he killed that girl or not in 1974, he was still a monster that took advantage of a unexcusably lackadaisical approach to violent sexual offenders, and also took advantage of anyone in his life that he could to get what he wanted. That's all the information that's out there in all the research that I did on this case. But before we go, I just want to offer a few thoughts, my thoughts on the case just in general. And the main thing is I have zero doubts that he's lying about not killing during the 90s. It's been said many, many times that serial killers will not stop until they either die or get caught. And while that's not always true, and I shouldn't use generalizations after I just said we shouldn't use generalizations, but there was nothing in his pattern or behavior that led me to believe that suddenly he was going to stop doing this. Now, the one thing I do realize is that his last known assisted murder was with Monique back in the early 90s. And then the next time he's confessing to a murder, he's doing these alone in 2000. It's possible that Monique stopped helping him commit murders for whatever reason back in the early 1990s. And as a result, he just found it too difficult to do things the way he used to do them. But I really, honestly believe that he didn't stop. And there's a couple articles out there that are real vague that said that in the night that he's also suspected of of killing some of his babysitters because some of the babysitters they hired would go missing. And that, to me, again, it's frustrating because. I see an article like that, and I don't know if it's sensationalized journalism that is just saying something in there to get more readers to think and talk about it like I am right now, or whether it's whether there's some truth to that. It said that in 1993, an au pair that the family had hired went missing, but the police were never really, never able to prove it was him. And I just wish somewhere somebody could get their hands on the police reports themselves and find out if some of this stuff is true but ultimately the police are actually going to test that mattress that they found the dna of the missing nine-year-old girl on and it's said in an article that there's 30 plus sources of female dna on that mattress and and police are currently working on trying to match them to the to missing persons crimes so just like in the case of the Golden State Killer, I ex- I suspect that we're going to have several matches coming back, either through forensic genealogy or delayed hits on, on missing persons cases, something along those lines where... And again, this is difficult because sometimes we talk about how two different police departments, like in the case of the Golden State Killer, they're five hours apart, they're two different police departments in the same state in the same country are having problems communicating or you know figuring things out between the two of them and in this case we're mentioning at least two different countries between belgium and france and so we're talking about police in some one country having cases tied to in the other country he's living in belgium in the 90s but he's potentially committing these crimes in france and in belgium so i think there's going to be Several years coming up here, and even the maybe the trial with Monique coming up where maybe she some more stuff will come out with that where we're gonna find more victims in the nineties of his of his crime spree, so I wouldn't be surprised, just like the investigator said, if he's confirmed to have killed eleven girls, the fact that we don't have a confirmed murder for ten years in there. My guess is the number's closer to 30. And I, I just, I hope for the sake of the, the girls that are missing, that the victims that he killed that have never been found, that we do get answers for their families and and in some way justice, I guess, could be served for that. So for the hero of this case, I selected the 13-year-old that fought off Michelle ran to the car and was able to identify her attacker and put him in prison because without her there's probably a lot more girls that we'd be adding to this list because he would have continued to predate on on girls until until he was caught so the fact that she at that age fought him off had the wherewithal to run to a car and get the license plate and call the police and follow through with identifying him and all that kind of stuff she's the name i found in all of the articles i read they wouldn't give her last name which i understand she's 13 but it's maria ascension is is her first name so uh, big thanks to maria ascension for being the hero in this case and bringing this absolute monster to the light and preventing any other any other crimes that he could commit so so that's it again difficult these international episodes can be difficult. I purposely chose my first one uh, in an English speaking country out of Australia so the articles are a little easier to, to navigate. Google Translate did help me with this one but it's just things are just a little bit more difficult especially the case being now 20 years old and then the crimes being 30 plus years old. A little harder to find the information but Appreciate you guys listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.